0: Hey everybody, this is Whitney and Sugi. We have a little message for you. This is our episode about all the changes going on in social media and the possible end of Twitter. And we recorded our episode on Saturday and then on Sunday Twitter did end.
1: So we predicted this for you or we manifested it into being. And for that, we would like to think, um, actually, specifically, this episode was the idea of Whitney's students. Um, that is correct. Who work with us as producers. So I just want to give them a lot of credit for being right on the money with this. Um, on Sunday, uh, July 23rd, uh, a logical time to announce a major rebranding and, um, you know, to destroy one's... Um, the the capital of one's of of one's long all brand. your brand equity that you've got to set it on yeah, fire so like i like to do that i like to do that on a sunday when i do it so um on sunday elon musk tweeted that twitter would be rebranding as x an everything app as my kid said to me no one wants an everything app they want a thing with a bird on it um and so i am now i'm rebranding my first novel the huntsman as y Oh, awesome. Um, that should be really good for SEO optimization as well. Nothing else is called that. so that should be that's a great idea. <laughs> so I think you know, I for one, am now, I think like this might be the last episode in which I ever tweet about fiction on fiction. I maybe you may be able to find me over at Blue Sky Whitney, I don't know about you. I I will try. I just tweeted today. So I'm, I am like I, you know, We're going to look. We're
0: going to talk about it in the episode. So all we're coming on is to say that this thing happened with the change in the name. The platform is the same. The same problems are there. And everything that we're going to discuss applies. Um, and the title of this episode is X Marks the Spot.
1: We hope you enjoy the show. this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, author of the novel Brotherless Night.
0: And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So Whit, how do you
1: feel about being on
0: Twitter these days? The script here says, I'd like to think I'm good at Twitter, but I don't think I'm good at Twitter. (laughs) I'm just sort of lying on the couch of Twitter eating some potato chips and not caring what happens.
1: Well, I think you're good at Twitter and I hope I am too, but it feels extremely strange to be good or to even want to be good or to try to be good at something that is so obviously flailing.
0: Failing, I think you mean to say. Like not going to exist anymore. I you know, I feel fine about it. I haven't invested a ton in there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I keep wondering if I should head elsewhere, but I also can't really bring myself to do it. I'm just so tired. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time writing for Twitter. I I used to, or I don't know, I like the form and the connections and the feel. And and those are the things that are all practically already out the window. So I don't know. I've been thinking about if I go elsewhere, what am I looking for? Like, what is the point? I don't know if I'm questioning the point so much as I'm
0: questioning, you know, what, how this is going to evolve, you know? I mean, and who's where, where sort of will there be a consensus about a new place to go? There's Mastodon, Threads, Blue Sky, and no doubt some others I don't even know about, in addition to the old standbys like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Um, and so, you know, I think we're at an interesting, maybe possibly exciting point um, where we don't know what's going to happen with, the, with social media. And it feels more unstable than any time that I can remember, at least in the last
1: decade. Um, and so we brought on someone to help us. Think about what the future of social media might look like. Robin Sloan grew up near Detroit and went to Michigan State University. He now splits his time between the San Francisco Bay Area and the San Joaquin Valley Valley of California, where he makes extra virgin olive oil under the label Fat Gold. His novels include Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, a New York Times bestseller published in 2012, and Sourdough, published in 2017. He's also written commentary for many publications, including the New York Times and The Atlantic. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is a true pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, we're so glad to have you. Uh, you left your job, left a job with Twitter's media partnerships team a dozen years ago. Once upon a time, you had a sizable Twitter following, but these days you're off the site entirely. Place is a little messy. Uh, blue check. I never got a blue check. Sugi has renounced hers. I think. I think it was I'm taken smart away. For never actually. having bothered to apply. Laziness worked out for me. Um so uh yeah there we are that's what we're talking about
1: and i've uh seen about a dozen think pieces i feel like pegged to elon musk's purchase of twitter arguing that social media is actually dead and I feel like I've, I see that argued, you know, every couple of years. And usually we kind of get over the notion because companies are always merging and going under, becoming obsolete. And then something new happens. And even in the wake of Musk's Twitter takeover, there was a Wired piece that said, Endings are an inevitable part of the social Internet's life cycle. And in the wake of what is gone of what has been lost or ended, new platforms are built from the parts of old ones. There is no Facebook without MySpace. Yeah, you know, like Facebook begats MySpace and, and no no MySpace without Friendster. Um, the Wired writer says no Spotify without Napster, no Instagram without Tumblr, it's like this lineage. That all sounds theoretically okay, like something substantial is going to follow Twitter. Sounds like the Bible. So, why does today feel different and maybe even a, a little apocalyptic for social media? Apocalyptic? That's
2: so interesting. I think, um, and I say this with the very antique perspective of someone who did work at Twitter for just a couple years. 10 years ago, um, and also someone who used it for many years, um, that one of the things that made it different um, was actually its sort of protean nature. Uh, Twitter wasn't always the same thing. It hasn't been the same thing. It's not like it is some story that started in 2007 or 2008 and is now just ending. It's sort of um, recreated itself, or seemed to reboot itself every, at least from my perspective, every two or three years. And I can tell you from the perspective of the inside, again, many years ago, it wasn't particularly well understood by the people who engineered it <laughs> or designed it. Um, and in some ways that's unsettling, um, but I think in other ways it's um, sort of special. And, uh, you know, it meant it was organic and alive and it was this weird thing following its own objectives. Um, and, yeah, it might be that the, uh, the, final, the final form uh, the final evolution of this weird protein mutant thing is uh, is just to quiet down and and not disappear because things like that don't just go offline. Um, but I do think it's going to get sort of uh, hotter and smellier the way a compost pile does. <laughs> oh god, gross. <laughs> Can you? I'm just curious because I think it's really cool, even if it was a while ago. Like what it's like to be
0: inside that company and you're saying like when they didn't fully understand the product or they would be surprised by things that happened. Can you think of a specific example when you were there and something surprising happened and people were reacting
2: to it? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's more foundational than you can imagine. Um, the question was, why do people use Twitter or what do people want to get out of Twitter? And certainly people at the company at that time had their opinions, they had their theories. Um, but I can tell you, um, hearing those theories and, and even kind of you know formulating some myself, they weren't any more convincing than the theories being posited in like newspaper essays or on people's blog posts. Everybody was kind of looking at the same mess. And of course it was dynamic. It wasn't static. It was, as I said, you know, changing and evolving. And suddenly people start talking a different way, you know, or suddenly like there's a new, like a new way of kind of relating across this infrastructure. And um, it just, it was, was, kind of radical to see that everyone in the world inside and outside the company was on equal footing in terms of understanding, like, what the heck is this? And I have to say, I do think, again, to come back to, like, maybe why the arc of Twitter is so particularly compelling, part of that has to do with Twitter's particular design and its particular management, which, um, you know, famously or infamously over the years has been very bad. And, um... There's a sense, I think, that, you know, something like just Instagram, to take one example, um, obviously it has some of that same organic motion and people are doing their own thing, billions of people are doing their own thing on the platform, but there's a sense in which it is all unfolding sort of according to Facebook Meta's design in a way that Twitter uh, just never did. It was just always more unruly.
1: So what was the moment when you were, what was the, what was the, um, the straw that broke the camel's back for you? Like, when were you like, what was the, because I think part of the reason I'm still on it is because I don't know what that straw is for me.
2: That's a great question. You know, for me, um, it was a combination of a lot of things and I could probably delve and dig to pick them all up. But one of them was actually, it wasn't, you know, rage or anger or or frustration. It was actually sort of weariness, you could almost say. And it was, I I realized that I was coming up to having been on that platform for 10 years. 10 years is a long time. And I I mean, this is really it. I I faced myself with the question, are you just going to be on here for another 10 years doing the same thing, you know, sending some tweets, maybe going through that cycle of getting repelled by it, but then pulled back in and repelled and pulled back in. And I just said, no, if that happened, I would be like, embarrassed um and so that was it for me just a sense that i whatever whatever i ever wanted to do on that platform or whatever i was gonna get out of it if anything i had done it i had gotten it and yeah it's time to do something else or do nothing i mean we're going to talk about the other something else that people can
0: do in a minute i don't want to do ask one last thing about twitter though i mean I've noticed, like, I'm on there because the same reason that I never got a blue check. Lazy. To, to, don't, don't have time to sign up for threads or whatever. Um, and, but I've noticed that my followers are going down, not up, you know. I'm not using the platform, yes, but just, like, I assume that represents people leaving the platform who, like, used to have accounts and, and aren't, don't anymore.
2: Um, is this going to die?
0: And, and if so, what
2: does that mean? Well, I think, it, I think it's a healthy thing. I think, I think all these platforms have held on for a little too long. Now, I'll preface what I'm about to say um, with the self-awareness that I am now a sort of medium old person and I'm about to be like, back in the good old days. Um, but, but I will just say, and I guess I'll just speak for myself. For me, as both a user of these platforms and someone who was, you know, a little bit involved in this industry itself, There was this time in the 2000s, sort of the middle to late 2000s, when it seemed like there was something new every month. And it was exciting to kind of bop between them and see how they were different and what new people were trying. And some of them failed very quickly. It was a ferment. It really had a sense of sort of percolation and fizz. And it was a scene. It was a creative scene in all the ways that, you know, there can be a literary scene or a music scene. It was kind of a socio-technical scene. Um, again, I I was, I was young, everything, everything was more fun and interesting and, and everything was new. Um, but I do think, I really do believe it was healthier in a way, in the way that, that any ecosystem ought to kind of bubble and fizz and percolate. And then, man, something happened in the 2010s. We just got locked in, um, and we sort of know the, the dramatis personae of, the internet of that period, you know, it's Twitter, and it's Facebook, and it's Google. And that's sort of it. Um, So I think I'm if indeed, um, cracks are forming in the ice, and suddenly we're going to see a new flourishing of weird experiments and things that might work or not work, I am all for it.
0: Okay, we're gonna take a short break here, and we'll be right back.
1: So despite all this social media doomsday talk, um, as we're as we're sort of mentioning here, Twitter's somehow not exactly dead yet. And there I is still an election. look at it every day. <sighs> I mean, yeah, no. I, I... Whitney, you got
2: to stop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there is an election coming up. And I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on how all of this all of the ways that Twitter has reinvented itself, some of which I think is for the worse, um, can still affect politics. You had a recent uh, short story in the Atlantic, the Conspiracy Museum, which I really um, enjoyed. And, and part of the display of American conspiracies in your fictional museum extends into the exabytes, uh, which seems right to me. These days, more than half the U.S. population gets its news from social media. I'm curious what role you think Twitter can play this time around and, and how sharper political divisions in social media generally are affecting the spread of news and fake news and and conspiracy theories, which seem to be a particular interest of yours.
2: Well, I think um, a, a change that has uh, happened to Twitter under its new administration that many people complain about is actually a healthy one for everyone else, for the body politic, for you know all the overlapping public squares, plural, that we have in this country and this world. And that change has been actually to lock it down, to make it much more difficult for people to access Twitter just to search for a name, maybe their name, maybe a URL, maybe the title of a book, Um, and, and even to look at people's profiles, you know, if I, if I, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but maybe I was curious to know what, what Whitney is getting up to. And I could just, I used to be able to go over and check it out and read and read and read. You can't do that anymore. And I think that's great because it makes the argument or it, it, I don't know, recognizes the truth that Twitter is just one little thing. It's not the public square. Like whenever anybody says that, whether it's the current CEO or some journalist writing about it. It's, I just, I hope everybody's got the antibodies in their brain to say, no, clearly not. It is a system, it is a place where people gathered and, and still gather, but it's just one little sort of less public square now among many, many, many more. And uh, that's how it ought to be, I think. You know, I think there ought to be many websites Um. And I, and I think they ought to have these little boundaries around them so you can choose to either step inside and become part of that conversation, whatever it is, and if not, it doesn't have to like loom like a storm cloud over your reality. It can actually just be uh, a place you don't go or a conversation you don't participate in. I think that's. I think that's healthy.
1: So it sounds like you think Twitter is not going to have a particular influence on the upcoming election.
2: Um, predictions are, you know. Silly, uh, and anything, anything you say the opposite will be true and weirder than you could ever have imagined. Um, but I'm pretty confident saying that it's, it's gonna be nothing like the role it has played in the past. Again, part of it, you know, just like so much in the economy has to do with sort of expectations and the stories get, that get told around things as much as the things themselves. Uh, Twitter was never, as, and I'm, you know this, and I think many people listening to the, to the show know this, um, Twitter was never that popular it was never particularly successful. Compared to many of its peers, it's like minuscule. I mean, to their great frustration, I think all the, the you know, engineers and designers at Meta working on Facebook and Instagram would be like, shut up about this little also ran network. But it was the story around it that sort of created and supported that, um, that sense of a place in the, in the public sphere. And I, think that, I do think that that story now has changed um, and it's collapsing in some ways. And again i i think that's all for the good it should it should be what it is which is a weird tiny product that fewer and fewer people use all the time
0: (laughs) here are some concerns that i have i feel like without if you don't have centralized platforms then you have what is already maybe happening where you end up with like liberal social media platforms and conservative social media platforms and on platforms you may those platforms may it may find it easier to disseminate facts that aren't fact checked um, or are inaccurate or you know it also these platforms and places like YouTube have made it possible to make a career out of di- make creating disinformation which used to not be possible um, I for instance was having dinner with one of my son's friends she's 18 she said to me well when is the recession going to be over and I'm like We're not having a recession. She's like, well, that's what it says on TikTok. And I was like, God damn it. We've had, we're having a boom (laughs) in Biden. And this is why Biden's poll numbers are down. Because people hear on TikTok
2: from people who don't have to be fact-checked that we're in a recession. Yes, it's true. It's, It's all true. It's all true. You know it is. It is. Of course, it's a danger, but I think that danger has been ever present. Um, I think there were. I think you could have. You could have. Um, related similar anecdotes a uh, hundred years ago and two hundred years ago. Of course, all the media would have been different. Um, and I really do. I guess I'm just a believer in um small pieces loosely joined. Um, I think having more little things and some of them. I'm sure will be far weirder and far darker than anything we can imagine from a big mega platform. Um, but to sign so much of, of everything, of our attention, over to this one particular algorithm, and and I don't even mean in terms of politics. I think politics is kind of one dimension that people understandably focus on. But But in some ways, for me, I think the the way it guides and directs people's behavior, the way they read, the way they watch things, the kinds of things they watch. I think it's much deeper than that. It has to do with the tone in which things are delivered, the sort of structure of the delivery mechanism. Um, I mean, we see that on YouTube. We see that for sure on TikTok. The, The platform itself is like, molding the people on the screen, almost like they're like they're action figures, you know, or Barbie and Ken dolls. And the TikTok is sort of moving their arms and legs um, by rewarding them for doing certain things and, and talking in certain ways at certain speeds. And um, that's fine. And, and that's again, that's fine. You know, there ought to be a TikTok. There ought to just be 50 more TikToks. And um, and that way they could all be a little bit different. And and it just it's a richer—it can become an ecosystem instead of, I guess we could say, a, a monoculture.
1: So I'd like to talk specifically about one of these—some uh, of these new platforms that we're talking about, what they mean for writers in particular. Even before Elon Musk bought Twitter, you wrote that it was headed for abandonment, a la MySpace, and, and as you've been saying, you know, you think that that's all for the good, and that, and also that every moment it hangs on was a moment that could be better spent on other possibilities. You also wrote, and I love this quote, As a writer, looking for evidence of readership and engagement on Twitter makes you into the drunk looking for your lost keys under the (laughs) streetlight. I, of course, immediately pictured myself doing exactly that but so that that is actually a very twitter specific statement and just thinking about all those author questionnaires where you know you're filling them out and it's like how many followers do you have do you use social media like what are your handles you know and then all of a sudden you're like have i I been doing this right um (laughs) yes yes. but now there are all of these other options so i'm curious what platforms you think writers should be considering and what if anything we should be trying to find there
2: yeah that i I'm gonna focus on the second part of that question because i I do think it's a little bit profound what what are we looking for or what ought we to be looking for? The allure of Twitter and i I mean I felt this as deeply as anyone else was that um it seemed for a moment like uh it was a place where you could inject a little bit of tracer dye into the network of the world, all the ways that people read things, and you could see something of yours, whether it was an article published online or the episode of a podcast or a book, you could see the way it spread, right? You know, you'd see different people tweet it at different levels of followership. You would see it get retweeted. You would you would see people write snarky things about it, but that's fine because it means that it's actually out there. It was like evidence that people were paying some kind of attention. And that's a magical thing. Um, I, I would actually argue that writ large, the way that worked across all sorts of kind of online analytics stuff for writers, you know, in newspapers, at magazines, for websites, through the whole of the 2010s, really changed what it means, uh, or maybe how it feels, to be a writer um, in in ways that are good and bad. I do think that um, a lot of that in the end is an illusion, because of course, it's not, none of that is showing you people reading. It's definitely not showing you people thinking about what you wrote, and it's not showing you the words that you wrote or the ideas that you put out there lingering in people's minds for days or weeks afterward, which of course is what we want. I mean, that's kind of the dream, to really inhabit people's minds and become part of their lives. Uh, No dashboard can show you that. No Twitter search can show you that. No, you know, analytics on your Instagram profile can show you that. I would argue that nothing can show you that, um, which is way it should be because those are people's (laughs) private minds and if you could if you could learn that you would want to flee uh you would want to flee that world that you had found yourself in so in terms of what we're looking for i do think we have to just push away from the table of i want proof that i that i'm being read i want proof that it's working i want proof that i'm popular um because you're not going to get it you have to redevelop the the real, the grit that writing and publishing requires, which is, um, that you don't get to know. You can only sort of look for the indirect measures. Um, and maybe that's an email you get at your personal email address from some random person at some point. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a friend taking a picture of a little, um, uh, bookstore shelf talker next to your book and you're like, oh my gosh, that's the sweetest three sentences someone has ever written in their handwriting about, about any novel. Um, you got to rely on that. That's what you get. But that does leave the other part of the question, um what what are we looking for? And I think that's up to everybody to decide. You know, I think some people really do um benefit from and they're hungry for a sense of conversation of of like kind of being in dialogue with other writers and readers kind of constantly. Um I am not anymore. I don't I don't know that I ever really was, but now I'm kind of like I'll just read the books. I don't need to it does I my my conversation with writers can be through the medium of their books. It doesn't have to be this other, like, you know, multi every 10 second process of kind of shooting things back and forth. Um, I, you know, I think there's also, not to be commercial about it, but I think there's also just selling books. I think that's something, that's a way that we can evaluate these different systems and these different ways of reaching people. Um, does it actually turn curious readers into devoted readers and fans? And does it activate devoted readers and fans? Um, and actually motivate them to go out to a bookstore or to you know ask their library to get a copy of your book. I think that's pretty important. I think a lot of writers ought to be as focused on that as they can. It's hard, obviously. Um, it's more daunting than just getting some likes or you know having a link circulate in one of these platforms. But you know I think at the end of the day, the actual health of this industry and all its incarnations um, is pretty important. And and I don't think any of these platforms are really looking out for that.
0: Okay, we're gonna take a short break here and we'll be right back.
1: So are you on Blue Sky or Mastodon or Threads or? I'm not, I'm not. I, you know, I just decided I don't need any, any more timelines. Um, and that's
2: not a decision for all time. You know, maybe something really weird and interesting will emerge in another year or two and I'll try it out. Um, but all of those in the ways that they simulate Twitter or kind of take Twitter's design as like, oh yeah, that's, that's obviously like a good idea, but, but we just want to do it differently, you know, and not have it be so creepy or like, you know, it'll be run by like more interesting people, fine. I actually am not really interested in that design anymore. I'm, I think I'm interested in other tempos, other cadences, other ways of organizing information, stuff you get from the world.
1: So, have you? Did you poke around them at all? I did. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I try them,
2: and it's just—it's the same feeling all over again. I just—I just, i just am uh, like, no, it's the—it's the same thing. And I think it's—you know—this is the piece that you mentioned um, that I wrote uh, quite a while ago, a little over a year ago, about about Twitter and the end of Twitter. One of one of the things that—and I, I think there is some some real kind of sorrow here and some um, some opportunity cost, you could say is that for whatever reason, it, it kind of drilled in the sense that, that that timeline, that way of organizing, you know, these little little uh, homogeneously sort of shaped messages in some sort of ranking, and you just go whiz, 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 and scroll through them. There's some sense that that was like natural. That was like, a uh, of course, what, what's more normal than that? But of course that's not true. It is a very particular decision, and it makes some arguments about the world, and uh, you know, not to be too cute and, and play to the uh, play to the audience here, but I think of uh, a bookshelf. you know I can see bookshelves behind both of you and I've got some sort of ragged bookshelf back here. That's just as valid a way of organizing information as a timeline. Um, it's not temporal in that way. It doesn't only prize the newest things or the hottest things. I actually think it's much more visually interesting because every book looks different. They're not all sort of just filling in the same blanks. And uh, I tell you, if somebody came up with a social media platform that in its design and sort of the, the feeling of it more closely resembled a bookshelf than Twitter's timeline, I would be interested in that.
0: So you're talking about a form that is heretofore unseen. We haven't seen it yet. It will rearrange the way that we think about looking at stuff online.
2: Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I hope so. You know, I, I or I should say, I hold I hold out hope that that you know I'm I'm looking at a screen. You both are looking at screens now. One thing that, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of fraught, uh, you know, energy in the screen, um, big and small. But one thing you got to say about the screen is it can be anything you want. Um, it is just an absolute wash of potential light and energy. And uh, yeah, why not make weirder things.
0: So, we're going to ask you to read from Mr. Penumbra's 24 Hour Bookstore, which came out in 2012. And then, but then you had another novel, Sourdough, which came out in 2017. Were you at different points in your social media career or a, a engagement when those two books came out? And I wondered if you could talk, if so, did you notice any influence
2: on how the books were sold that had to do with social media or not? Ah, uh, well, I, I can only speak for myself, and pe- people have had very different experiences in this regard so you almost can't generalize Um, but speaking for myself for as much time and energy as I put into all kinds of internet stuff um at the at in in that time around 2012 and the years before and the years after um I don't think I don't think they did a thing for book sales um I think I think my book sold um thanks to the efforts of booksellers uh, I was on NPR, which is the absolute best place for any author to appear. It was incredible to see that instantly and powerfully reflected in sales and, uh, old school. I mean, again, again, I think, I mean, I, I think that the real, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm where I'm wary of generalizing because, because truly I know some people have had spectacular success, sometimes planned, sometimes just, you know, the, the breath of the gods on them, um, uh on twitter and other and tiktok obviously um but i really believe in general um they have not been a great um commercial success for for books i think i think other things have just been much much more valuable and that's been part of the that's been part of the kind of detour i think um maybe and maybe enough time has passed now and enough data has kind of has been collated that we can just admit that that that's not what they're for they're not for selling books it's uh Maybe maybe it's for something else, but if you're if you want to talk about selling books, yeah, seriously, go go on public radio. You'll you'll do a lot better, and you'll probably have a nicer conversation too.
0: What about you, Suki? You've had the book out most recently of all of us, right? Did you feel like social media was particularly I like I for instance, we do social media for this show. Absolutely. We will do it for this show. We will we normally send the guest a little note saying, hey, if you could retweet this, we will not send it to Robin because he can't do it. But uh, no. we will do that, and I don't know if it helps the episodes or not, you know, but I wonder if, Sugi, did you notice anything about social media in regards to Brotherless Night coming out?
1: Um, I think my expectations were really low, kind of for the same reasons that, Robin, you were just saying, that I have, I don't know, like sort of a middling number of followers. Um, like there are many writers who have, you know, hundreds of thousands or whatever. And I think I have in the ballpark of 8,000. And I sort of a while ago kind of stopped really trying to like raise that significantly because I just didn't think I was on, I realized essentially that I was on Twitter because it was a space that was helpful for me to work out ideas or to do little squibs of writing that I wouldn't do elsewhere um but that it wasn't i didn't believe that the people i was engaging with on twitter were necessarily people who were going to go to stores and buy my book i just didn't think so um i didn't see why that correlation would exist um they didn't seem to be there for that and i stayed on it because um a lot of sri lankan activists are on it there's a lot of sri lankan news there um it's kind of the same reason i it's the only reason i still use facebook messenger so my expectations for that were really low and I use Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and I think I'm—I think I'm still on those things because I kind of like them. Slash, because being a diasporic person has tethered me to those in certain ways, that might not be true for other people. So, um, it makes it possible to be part of a conversation that, due to time difference, I otherwise like maybe wouldn't be in. Uh, but I don't actually think that I don't think social media has very much to do. Um, with sales, at least not Facebook and Twitter. Like, arguably, I learned a lot about Instagram this time around. I had to, you know, go through, like, kind of learn about bookfluencers and bookstagram, which I was not, that was not a conversation I was part of before Brotherless Night. So that was, that was new to me. And then I also have seen, like, Robin's talking about old school media, like, it used to be radio and newspaper. Newspapers seem, are far less powerful now than they were when Love Marriage came out in 2008. And, and then when, when Mr. Penumbra came out in, in 2012, and Whitney, when your um, first books were coming out, right, like to me, seeing the waning power of newspapers has been like a real, um, I'm like, wow, I, I have been spouting this, and now I'm really feeling it, actually, in a different way. So that's what, that's what I would say about it. But um, yeah, I'd be curious what the two of you think about that. Well, you know, I
2: think, and, and you know, I sometimes in my in my uh, thirst for you know novelty and, and I guess you could say my optimism that new things are possible, I um I neglect to sort of underscore. I think we are in a crisis now, a crisis of sort of distribution and a crisis of um, the you might call it like the intellectual supply chain. Like, right? How do how do books reach people? Um, if it's not if uh you know oh my gosh review in the New York Times. Or whatever, big newspaper is actually not very meaningful. Um, certainly not commercially, and, and maybe not even in terms of being read widely. Okay, that's out. You know, if Twitter like doesn't work because maybe it never really worked. Okay, that's out. And you start crossing these things off, and you you sort of start looking around, going, well, what what are the instruments I have to to tell, and my pu- and my publisher has, and my fans and readers and and friends and peers. You know, how do we tell each other about these things? And, um, you know, there's a few answers to that that still work. I, I do think email, old, crusty, paleolithic email um, is still one of the great tools of the internet and it will remain that way for a long time. But um, we ought to have more than that. And, you know, that, that's a challenge for, and an opportunity, I think, for people out there interested in culture and commerce um, and all that kind of stuff to, to invent some new systems for that. It's, every, everybody is kind of saying, I need new tools and I need new ways of connecting to people.
0: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Uh, well, one of the things that we both enjoy about your work and uh, we're connecting with people about your work today is that you write about technology in a very you know, interesting, imaginative, funny you know, uh, Wei and your 2012 novel, which we've already mentioned, Mr. Penumbra's 24 hour bookstore is about an unemployed Silicon Valley worker who finds a new gig on the late shift at the title shop. Um, and at, a, at, a at that job, he discovers some unusual things and people connected to technology. I wondered if you could just read to us from that.
2: Yeah, sure. I would love to read a little section. Um, this is uh, sort of midway through the book where our protagonist and narrator um, Clay who has gotten this job at this strange 24-hour bookshop. Um, He's in New York City, many weird things have happened, but um, he's in New York City hanging out with um, a girl he's met, her name's Kat, and she is a Googler and she's brilliant and ambitious and has a sci-fi mind, uh, as you'll see in this section. They're just having a conversation and she asks him, have you ever played Maximum Happy Imagination? Sounds like a Japanese game show. Kat straightens her shoulders. Okay, we're going to play. To start, imagine the future. The good future, no nuclear bombs. Pretend you're a science fiction writer. Okay, I say, uh, world government, no cancer, hoverboards. Go further, Kat says. What's the good future after that? Spaceships, party on Mars, further. Star Trek, transporters, you can go anywhere, further. I pause a moment and then I realize I can't. Cat shakes her head. It's really hard. And that's what, a thousand years? Well, what comes after that? What could possibly come after that? Imagination runs out, but it makes sense, right? We probably just imagine things based on what we already know and we run out of analogies in the 31st century. I'm trying hard now to imagine an average day in the year 3012. I can't even come up with a half-decent scene. Will people live in buildings? Will they wear clothes? My imagination is almost physically straining. Fingers of thought are raking the space behind the cushions, looking for loose ideas, finding nothing. Personally, I think the big change is going to be our brains, Kat says, tapping just above her ear, which is pink and cute. I think we're gonna find different ways to think, thanks to computers. You expect me to say that? Yes, I did. But it's happened before. It's not like we have the same brains as people a thousand years ago. Wait. Yes, we do. We have the same hardware, but not the same software. Did you know the concept of privacy is totally recent? And so is the idea of romance, of course. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think the idea of romance just occurred to me last night. I don't say that out loud. Each big idea like that is an operating system upgrade, Kat says, smiling now. Comfortable territory. Writers are responsible for some of it. They say Shakespeare invented the internal monologue. Oh, I am very familiar with the internal monologue. But I think the writers had their turn, Kat says, and now it's programmers who get to upgrade the human operating system. I am definitely talking to a girl from Google. Okay. So what's the next upgrade? It's already happening, she says. There are all these things you can do and it's like you're in more than one place at one time and it's totally normal. I mean, look around. I swivel my head and I see what she wants me to see. Dozens of people sitting at tiny tables, all leaning into phones showing them places that don't exist and yet are somehow more interesting than here. And it's not weird. It's not science fiction at all. It's, she slows down a little and her eyes dim. I think she thinks she's getting too intense. Her cheeks are flushed and she looks great with all her blood right up there at the surface of her skin. Well, she says finally, it's just that I think the singularity is totally reasonable to imagine. Her sincerity makes me smile. And I feel lucky to have this bright, optimistic girl sitting with me here in the irradiated future deep beneath the surface of the earth.
1: Thank you so much. Um, that's so prescient, and it came out about a decade ago. Um, we talked a little bit before we started recording about spoilers, but I wonder if you want to tell our listeners anything about the singularity.
2: Ah, uh, the, uh, the singularity. I mean, of course, it's, that's, that's a, very, um, a very Silicon Valley thing. I remember first hearing about it... Um, When I moved into town with the Bay Area 15 years ago or more, the idea that the moment will come when technology can begin to sort of improve itself, uh, computers, right, AI, and when that happens, the predictors say, all bets are off. We don't know. We have nothing in our history, nothing in human experience can prepare us for what that kind of exponential technological takeoff might look and what what the results might be. Um, that, was big, that was big in the water uh, when I came here. It dipped away for a bit, um, but I can report to you, and I'm sure you all have detected this as well, that with the new resurgence of uh, AI, it's back. <laughs> and people are wondering, people are wondering, wondering right now. They're like, yeah, is, hmm, this is okay. Uh, this is gonna be interesting.
0: I mean, that is the singularity, that's happening. Biden was just meeting with all of the like seven AI companies, uh, asking them to put voluntary curbs on their research, so as to not let it get out of control. Which I think they so I read to. in the New York Times.
2: It's a big deal. It's a it's a no. It's a it's a big deal. It's it should it should I I, I think I'm you know you got to watch out for some of the Silicon Valley hype and the the self-aggrandizement. Um, but uh, there's a good chance that all this AI stuff does make our Talk of social media seem a little a little quaint. It could uh, it could change our lives a lot more. Well, I think that's what's going to make create a platform that is
0: something that you haven't we haven't imagined before. Like you were talking before, I I like have earbuds in. I wear them almost all day long and listen to stuff on my phone. You know, but why couldn't I have like an AI you know stream that's that's on my earbuds and I say writers I know and that just runs through some people whatever they're doing on that, and or I could say. New movies, and it'll give me something about new movies, you know? I mean, that would be great for me. I would use that. And if it was an audio social
2: media instead of a a screen-based social media, why can't that exist? Someone someone in Mountain View is trying to build that for you right now, Whitney. I guarantee it. They're hard at work.
1: Did either of you see... um, Gosh, I'm trying to remember which network this was on, and it's a sign of the times that I can't remember. But um, a graduate student at MIT built a thing that is like a VR thing that can... You think at Google and then it Googles your thought. And so he he ordered the news court. I mean, I, I was I was kind of horrified. He ordered himself and the news correspondent a pizza by thinking they each got different pizzas. Um, and she was like sitting there like, I don't believe this, p- this pizza is coming. And then, you know, suddenly there's a delivery at the studio. Um, I was watching this online yesterday and was kind of like, oh, God, I don't want to. I want to order a pizza by picking up the phone. Um, Did
0: he have an implant in his brain to do that or was there some sort of surgery involved? He was wearing a device.
1: He was wearing a device. I mean, I have this thing sort of bookmarked so I can go back and kind of watch the whole thing and and understand mm-hmm. understand it a little more clearly. And I will find it and put it in the show notes for our listeners. Um, but yeah, I mean, exactly that kind of right. Like Facebook turned into Meta, so it can explore this kind of this kind of technology. And it's I think you're right that someday you know you're one of we had uh, Wahini Vara who's also written with AI on the show several episodes ago, and you know you've also written with AI and you've. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, this is, the conversation going to turn from being about social media to being about something else. But I'm not even sure that it's, it's not just AI. There's some other word for it that doesn't seem to exist yet.
2: Exciting times when our vocabulary uh, you know, struggles to catch up with reality. You, yeah, exactly. When you, when you don't have words for it or where everything sort of has quotation marks around it. It's, the, ah, it's like a writer, but it's not. It's great. It's, you, you know You know things are happening when the language doesn't exist yet it's like a healthy terror. So,
1: going back yeah. going back to
0: See, um, you now Sugi Sugi can't really put up with too much optimism. She has to go back to the other I am normal the designated what, gr- of grouchy the show. way of being.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, but this is a this is a good this is a good check on my pessimism. I am curious going back to the question that Whitney asked about how changes to social media and other forms of technology like the AI. You know, I know that early on when you were writing you were kind of like you were writing in these little um, little snippets that you would then kind of expand and that Twitter kind of influenced the the chunks in which you were writing. How does writing feel to you now? And what is the relationship of your prose to everything that we've been talking about?
2: Oh, man. Wow. Sugi, what a question. That's a huge question. Um, I don't know. I don't think I know the answer to that. I don't think I can answer it. Um, because, of course, it's, you know... It's odd, right, to confront these AI systems just as an example. Um, And, you know, even if um, you don't think they're useful or you're, you know, think it's complicated or whatever your feelings are about them, just seeing how they work or kind of watching them work can be very disorienting. And and one of the things they do, I think anyone kind of, you've caught up to this if you read about AI, is that they're trained on, on a huge, 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 talk about exabytes, huge pile of material. Um, like any of these language models that, that we're talking about today, for sure have read every public domain book available on the internet and probably most copyrighted books too, and then like the whole web and, you know, every legal paper ever and blah, 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 all this other stuff. And out of that, you know, they, they sort of, they sort of simmer it and they reduce the sauce and they taste it and they're like, oh yeah, that's good. And, And then they go forth and they, they compose new stuff. And it has made me, working with some of those tools and doing a little bit of programming and, and tinkering with them, watching them work, has made me introspect about how I train my my own language model in my brain on all the things I read and how that stuff works. I don't have any answers. I don't think anyone does. You know, it's not a, it's not a perfect analogy. It's not like those, those AI things really are like our brains. But they're not not like them. Um, and it has made me just... Again, I don't have any answers, but it's really made me wonder about exactly that question. Like, like, what defines the shapes of your sentences? And it's all the inputs. You know, if if only it was just the novels you read. Yeah, right. It's the, you know, back of the cereal box, and it's the tweets you read, and it's signs on the street, and bumper stickers, and everything else. Um, and it's art, too. It's other things getting cross-connected, you know, things that aren't necessarily linguistic, but they they find their way into into words and sentences and I don't know it's one of those you start talking you start talking about it too much and it starts to make your head spin uh in a good way in a good way and I think I think anyone interested in the question of influence the question of where words come from which is kind of a big question they owe it to themselves to at least kind of poke at some of these language models because I think they actually make those questions richer and uh yeah they just they deepen the question
0: Robin, it's great to have you with us and your own language. Uh, Listeners, don't miss Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore and Sourdough. And you can also subscribe to Robin's email newsletter, which we'll put links to that in the uh, show notes, to learn more about his new novel, which is forthcoming from MCD Books at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Robin, thanks so much.
1: We really appreciate it. Thank you
2: both. It was a wonderful conversation. It's just great to see you both and chat.
0: That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Kniggendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFpod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!